Welcome to One Symphony, a podcast that explores classical music's relevance in our modern lives. I'm conductor Devin Patrick Hughes, and I'm here to share with you stories and conversations with musicians, composers, and artistic entrepreneurs that aim to unite us into one symphonic world. I'm excited to share with you my interview with the fantastic composer and educator, Ed Gertain. I had a blast recording this interview, and I'm sure you'll get a kick out of Edgar's passions and insights. I wanted to give all my listeners a heads up on this episode that there is some more colorful language and a depiction of an historical murder during the show. So if you have kids in the room or may find this content at all offensive, you may want to make necessary adjustments. That being said, I hope you enjoy the interview. Hi, everybody. Welcome to One Symphony. I'm here with Edgar Gertain. Edgar Gertain is an American composer whose works range across folk, sacred, and popular styles in the concert hall. Hailed as immediately captivating by the New York Times, Edgar has sharpened his craft at prestigious schools like Ithaca College, Princeton, and Rutgers. In addition to composition, Edgar has had careers as a church organist, arranges, directs a school for the arts in Chile, conducts choruses, and was the inaugural composer in residence for the Arapaho Philharmonics Composition Competition, holding the post of composer in residence. Welcome, Edgar. It's so great to be speaking with you today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, thank you for the invitation. And I have to say, out of the out of that whole list, I mean, the one of the things that really sticks out for me is that time with the Arapaho Philharmonic it was a very special experience, a very valuable one for me, and I want to begin by saying, you know, Devin, how are you? Because we haven't talked in quite a while. And I, I personally, I, I regret that when I was in Denver or Aurora or Littleton, wherever, in, in Arapahoe County. All of it. All, all of it. it. Yeah. It's all the same. <laughs> that, yeah. that we never, that I never made the time or I don't know or, or what, but we never like really got together. I, and had a, a kind of a one-on-one, -on -one, I think, like this. So I'm glad we're able to do it now. Well, we got to eat some steak. I thought we ate we steak did, together. but I think there was like there were other people around. You know, like there were like other people from the orchestra. There's, so yeah. you know, like those kind of situations are you know, they're that's not the same as this. Although uh, this is technically, you know, we have a a public, but <laughs> but it's they're not here with us. Let's talk about then what is, what is the relationship that a composer expects from a conductor? You know, to be honest with you at this stage of the game, I'm not I'm not really into professional relationships. You know, like this this idea of like a conductor, composer, musician. You know, I mean like we all have our things that we do, right? But what interests me much more is like actually just like knowing a person, having a relationship with someone, you know, and like getting to collaborate with them. Because I mean, for me, the richest collaborations always come from a place where there is a mutual, I guess, understanding of what the other person is trying to do. And the reason the relationship feels much more, I guess I would say natural or much more, you know, friendly, I guess, than, you know, I don't know, just conductor 
conductor composer but i guess you know i guess the real the, the right answer is like what is the best conductor it's one that does my music <laughs> And I think any composer would say that. (laughs) Well, your music and you as a person was a very formative relationship for me because you opened my career at the Arapaho Philharmonic as music director. One of the first things we did is create a uh, composition competition. And we, I think we got over, I think at least 60 or 70 applicants and your piece isolation day. Is it 253? That's the number. I can remember, never remember the actual day. But that jumped out as a clear winner for soprano and orchestra and, you know, just the kind of majesty and beauty and mystical atmosphere you create. It was just so unique. So maybe we can talk a little bit about that music or how you wrote that. Well, that piece, I mean, it's a song, right? So songs in general, for me, are intuitive, right? Because you you have one line that you can kind of connect to the the vocal line right so you have a really clear line that can take you from left to right on the page the text was i thought the text is brilliant the guy who wrote it his name is will goldberg he's living in the city now uh sorry the city new york i I live in chile but i still say the city as in (laughs) didn't you were talking about santiago or something (laughs) yeah but the text definitely facilitated a kind of easy writing because the lines were short enough to, that, to, you know, like to keep it going. And then, I don't know, I, I don't get too crazy or, or um, a- abstract about it, I guess, when, you know, writing a song, because I'm not interested in showing, you know, the timbral qualities of the syllabants and the concept, you know, what, you know, whatever. No, it's just like, I, I want to set a mood and deliver the, the text in a way that charges the text with some kind of emotion that highlights it in some kind of uh, artistic way. And, you know, the music that, that works, you know, so um, that particular piece, I, I I remember I had the sketch for it probably somewhere in a notebook. I was looking for the score. I couldn't find the score. So I was hoping you would, you would remind me a little bit of what it looked like. The full score was, I mean, it's a that massive thing. I mean, it's got all the color winds and the harp and, and all that stuff, but it doesn't start out like that. You know, I mean, at the beginning, it just starts off as, you know, a line a single line on a on a staff and then a you know a bass line or or some chords you know sometimes i do, i even do it just on one staff and i write the chords on top <laughs> you know isn't all music though a song or a dance i mean because you said it was a song as opposed to a symphony or a song or a dance i guess that would be one way song and dance yeah that's everything if you just if you can encapsulate all of life song and dance <laughs> yeah, sure sure uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's one way to look at it, I guess. Yeah, I mean, that could be a very long conversation if you want to talk about that. <laughs> well, and I, and I can play a little of this, assuming you're going to grant us the rights to play some of this music. I, I mean, I bet you it's hundreds of thousands of dollars, right? Just to just for 30 seconds of airtime, I'm thinking. Yeah. It should be. Anyway, It's I think people are going to really enjoy it. So I'm going to play a little bit of this, and then we'll come back and uh, we'll talk about what we heard. Thank you. 
One of the things I kind of noticed, you're kind of like a romantic composer out of place and out of time, like living in the year 2021, because there's Mahler in there, there's Wagner and a lot of your other music, there's Brahms. Yeah, I mean, so this is actually, you know, one of the I remember once you made a comment to me that it it seemed like I was still finding my voice. Right. And I think that I that that's continued right that path um, uh, like I, I've I've the thing is, I, I really don't think much about if I'm romantic or, you know, try to place myself um, in any kind of way. I mean, I, I, if I write music that sounds out of place, it's because in a lot of ways, my life is not so different from those historical composers, right? I mean, I, I work in a church, you know, I have like, I'm a little like kind of Kapellmeister down here, you know, I mean, it's, it's like, that's my job. And what is the music that we play? It's mostly... You know, I mean, I have to every week go play, you know, Brahms Sonata or, you know, songs or direct a choir. And it's mostly that kind of music. And I like that kind of music. So it comes through when I write. But I would say more than romantic, I'd say that that I have a polyglot language because it really I listen to all kinds of music. I mean, I love contemporary music as well. I take what I can and it's just tools that go into the tool bag. And, and as I go, I just, you know, take them out as I need them. Would you say you listen to more music than you play or compose or is it kind of an equal balance? When I was younger, when uh, I would definitely listen to a lot of music. I mean, the, the library at Rutgers had a, a disc, like a, a CD library of 12,000 CDs. I was there every day copying five, 10 CDs a day. And I would listen to every single one of them. These CDs were, I mean, it was all classical art music, contemporary music. You know, there's a very strong current of experimental con contemporary music at Rutgers, or there was um, when I was there um, because Charles Warden had, had taught there for a number of years. So there was that kind of uh, element in the air. But as time goes on, I would say I, I probably, now I listen mostly to contemporary music. I'd say, you know, like new stuff. I, I'm very interested in what my colleagues are doing, especially people I know, um, people that I have some kind of connection with. I, I really like to support them and listen to them. You mentioned uh, a Kapellmeister, which is kind of cool because in Europe, that's the training. And so a lot of times the composer and the conductor, or the accompanist, it's all kind of interwoven. And in the 20th century, a lot of European musicians went down to South America to start schools and orchestras and and just get some nicer weather, I think. Uh, how did you end up in Chile? Oh, well, I originally came down as a poor kid that just finished school and I wanted to travel. I went, actually lived on a farm. I was a volunteer on a farm. 
for like two months. And so I came down just to travel and I, I stayed here for two months, you know, kind of like living out of a backpack. And then I went back, I started my master's degree. Then I came back again to Chile to work for the department of uh, the Ministry of Education. They had a program to teach English. So I came the second time to teach English. I lived in a, a school up in the, or like a, a, very, a small village up in the mountains uh, for about, I think that was six months. I came back, met you, you know, and nothing was the same after that. It rarely is. <laughs> and then after that, I mean, now I've been here full time, pretty much, except for, you know, going to Buffalo every once in a while since the end of 2016. the music you first remember hearing church music man definitely definitely we went to a baptist church real conservative place new jersey on the pines and uh it was a i remember it was mostly older people there were some younger people too i guess i mean i was i was young i was really young but uh you know it was it made a very powerful impression on me everybody singing hymns um the a congreg congregational singing. Um, and you have a little bit of that in yeah. your second symphony. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Why not? It's got everything else in it. There's a lot of music in hymns. There's a lot of music in chorales. I mean, the, the foundation of Western music comes from these Riemann Schneider Bach chorales. Yeah. I mean, hymns have a rich history. I mean, we have a thousand years, more than a thousand years worth of, of hymns and hymn tunes and hymn melodies. Um, they're practical for pedagogical means uh, for, you know, organ for organists, right? I mean, you know, that's what you, you start doing, you, you know, you play chorales. You, I mean, now I, I feel like kind of like distant, I guess, a little bit. Like I, I would hesitate to write a chorale and uh, like a, a literal chorale in a piece now for different reasons. But yeah, I mean, they're, you know, it's a form of music like any other, I guess, um, they're either songs or dances. Yeah, and, and some of the chorales that come to mind for me are chorales that have been in symphony, like the Reformation, the Mendelssohn Symphony. Um, even the Stravinsky Soldier's Tale, that petite chorale and the grand chorale at the end, you know, when there's all this reflection going on, when these, these seven disparate chamber musicians play this full fortissimo chorale before the triumph of the final triumph of the devil. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what do you make of it? I mean, what do you, as a conductor, what do you do 
when you when you come across a chorale in a, in a piece of orchestral music. Well, uh, you balance it, and in many ways, that's Stravinsky. And the less voices in a chorale, the harder it is to to make work. You mean the less voices, like regi- like unison doubling, or the less mass of musicians in a chorale, the more invisible it is, and you can transparent, and it's just. For some reason, that chorale is really hard to make work after all this Stravinsky, multi-metric, almost impossible stuff to play. You get to this chorale and you think it's gonna, it's a walk in the park, but it, but it's you have to spend time on it. Well, yeah, the instrumentation in Stravinsky is usually searching for an effect that's ex- exactly opposite of you know the standard what, what works. You know things. In Stravinsky, you know, how many times where he'll have a C major chord spaced like this, you know? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice naked chord. <laughs> and it's interesting because, you know, you listen to different recordings and different conductors can get wildly different sounds out of the, those things. I mean, what, what's your approach to dealing with, um, with those kinds of textures? Well, my approach for Stravinsky is a lot of prayer, a lot of study, a lot of sweat, a lot of blood pressure medication. Yeah, but what does study mean for a conductor? Like what? Like how does a conductor study a score? Like what do you do to prep a score? Well, so for example, on the Stravinsky, the Rite of Spring, I've conducted that whole piece twice in concert, and I feel incredibly inadequate and unprepared if, if I had to do that again. I think that you know conductors who are maybe 60, 70, 80, 90, they've conducted these pieces maybe 50 times. I think probably when you get to about 10 to 15 times, you start to feel like you kind of know the piece. But it takes a lot of time. You can negate that somewhat by, as you said, studying. And that's singing the lines, whether it be solfege or just with your natural voice on a syllable or a vowel. It's playing it at the piano. It's checking out different recordings, learning about the piece, learning about the history, you know, knowing that there was a riot at the Rite of Spring and you want to try and recreate that effect. You don't want audiences like clawing each other's eyes out, but you want to create that effect of just, this is such a radical thing to play. Do you think it's still radical today? Yeah, definitely. Most most certainly. I think all this stuff, I mean, I think that's why artists are are Beethoven or Bach, because they're incredibly radical and they still sound radical. I mean, take this Gesualdo guy, Carlo Gesualdo, right? You've heard of this guy, right? The composer? Yeah, of course. So he's the only composer slash murderer in the history of, I mean, as far as we know, I don't know where, what your, the skeletons in your closet are. Yeah, I didn't tell you the real reason why I'm in Chile. <laughs> no. So no, so this guy, okay, he's a prince, right? So in, I don't know, in 1500s or something, and, and they run the police, they run everything, if they're aristocracy of that little, of their little community. And so he knew that his wife was having an affair. And so he told her, I'm going to go out on a hunting trip for the weekend. And he really didn't. And he waited till her lover came in and he, and he stabbed them like dozens of times. And then the police are coming, they're investigating the crime and he runs back in the room with the police there and stabs them again, just to make sure they're dead. But the cool thing about this is you can hear this in the music. You can hear the, the demented nature of this guy's mind. It's not like the standard Renaissance music we hear. It's really quite twisted music. Yeah. It's very experimental. It's very expressive. I mean, it's really haunting. I love just Wallace music. I mean, those are violent times, though. I mean, like, we, I, I, I think we take it for granted, like, how 
how peaceful things are, you know, like relatively um, between people today. I'm reading the autobiography of Benvenuto Cellini, who was a uh, you know, Renaissance. Oh man, it's, it's wild. I mean, like the, he's got like, you know, the story will just be like, you know, I was walking down the street, bandits came out, tried to, you know, tried to jump me, but I had my, my scabbard and my buddy was with me. We took them all down and we left their bodies in the street, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, I just need, like, I mean, they talk about violence, like, it's just such a common thing. There is a chapter where he says he got into, like, a, a fight with people who had an arquebus. They didn't have, like, guns. They, you know, had, like, you know, like, so, you know, they, they shoot them, but then they have to, like, you know, reload them, do, do the whole thing. It's like, you know, and, and they were really inaccurate. So, I mean, I guess, you know, you get a, if you're violent, but, you know, not, like,
We both went to Ithaca College. Can you tell me the most important thing you learned in school and the thing that you wish you would have learned in school? Man, Ithaca College was an amazing place. Absolutely amazing place. And I was only there for one year. I wish I could have been there for for longer. I arrived completely unprepared to go to college. I think, you know, like the, just the whole, the whole concept. I know the feeling. <laughs> I, yeah. I mean, I was the first in my, my family to go, go to college. Oh, congrats. I mean, I shouldn't have been there in the first place because it was so expensive. Like we really had no idea what we were getting into um, financially. The compositions um, basically pay for themselves, right? You know, that's what you think, you know, because when you go into it, it's like, oh yeah, you know, composers, like this composer got commissioned for $10,000 and there's this kind of like, you know, because like I go going into it, I, you know, had like the, the working class ethic, you know, idea of like money, time, labor, you know, the things go together, you work, someone pays you, you know, this whole thing, you know, it's only like, probably in the past five years that it finally started to click with me that that model does not apply to to the arts at all. I mean, to answer your question, I mean, Jesus, I mean, there were so many things. I mean, every day was a learning experience there. I mean, one of the, the memories that stands out to me or one of the opportunities that was really good was like, I, for the, I guess it was like work study or something, some kind of program that, that I was in. I had a, a job as a stagehand. Man, that was an awesome job. That was so cool. Uh, turning pages um, for all the, the guest recitals, you know, the, when the guest artist came in. That's a lot of pressure being that page turner. <laughs> you, you deal with it. You know, it's like anything else. <laughs> Maybe I didn't do it enough times to where I got, it became second nature. <laughs> well, you know, the good thing is now everybody uses a tablet. So I know that I bet you probably the page turners union in New York City is probably, they probably have like some kind of rule about that. They're, they're probably all pissed off. They're done. Yeah. They're, they're having problems, I think. Yeah, I mean, but obviously there were many things that I wish I, I could have done differently. But, um, but you know, you live and you learn. What about you? I mean, what, what was your takeaway from your, you did your undergrad there? I was at Ithaca College as a master's student. I started my master's degree at Ball State University. And it was sim- it was one year, and for various reasons, I, I loved Ithaca College just like you, and I really wanted to go there, so I transferred. Um, and I did two years there. So I got three years of a master's, which is pretty, pretty cool because as a conductor, you want as much time, possible podium time as you can possibly get. And I was just lucky in all of my degrees, whether they be at Ball State or Ithaca College or later University of Denver, to have teachers and orchestras that just wanted you to get in front of the orchestra. Kind of like composition, I think you can only really learn on the job. You can't stand in front of a teacher and wave your arms in the air and you need to be with musicians and ideally large quantities of them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you want to write that kind of music, I mean, there's a lot of composers that just write chamber music, but even for them, obviously it's very important to, to hear their music and to, to work with players. You know, of course, though, for a composer, the best thing you, a composer can do is go pick up an instrument and like actually play it. I mean, how does a, a conductor make a, the transition from like school to like, now, I don't know about you. I mean, I feel like I'm, there was a point where like I stopped 
caring about making the transition from like being a young composer to like being a real composer you know it's like, we're old and real right now we're both old and real i guess yeah i you know because there but the thing is like i feel like i never crossed a threshold or an, the, the threshold is when i stopped caring right and i realized that like oh this is actually just kind of a shit show and you know and we're just i'm just gonna try and do the best that i can and it seems that oh that's what everybody else is doing it seems like that like the, this idea that i had of like you know uh, like, oh, I'm going to be, one day I'm going to make it, you know, one day I'm going to be a composer and commissions will arrive and I will live from those commissions and I will write music that is artistically compelling, whatever that like that, that never happened. Right. And I don't think it ever will happen. I don't think that, well, anyway, so I'm curious, like, how, what is it? I mean, for, do conductors have that? I mean, do they tell you you're going to get a job? I can say that I am still waiting for my great symphony to materialize too. Because I think every conductor, whether they will admit it or not, we're closeted composers. We really want to create this music. And that's I mean, we get to create it, which is the most amazing job in the world. I would say probably even better. I mean, you read about the lives of many composers and they're not great lives. I mean, maybe many conductors too. <laughs> but that's always been my, in my, I mean, from when I discovered in college that I wanted to do music professionally. I was composing and I was trying to figure out how did Beethoven write this symphony and I want to write a symphony like it. But then you, as a conductor, maybe the luckier ones, you just get inundated with, with scores that you have to conduct. And pretty soon that originality just kind of leaves your brain little by little. And you realize you don't really, you don't, it's hard to find an original melody in there. Well, you know, I think this, the idea of originality right? I mean, and progress, you know, and like all these, these kinds of um, things. I mean, they're, they're very 20th century ideas, right? Uh, like there's more to composing, there's more to creating than just being original. The mere act of creation has a value in itself. And I would argue, perhaps, that even more important than the the art itself or what the art says is the links that it creates between the artists and their community, right? You know, like Bach's cantatas, they're not all that original, you know? I mean, some of them, you know, I mean, Mozart, another one, there's plenty of music that's, you know, pretty pedestrian, actually. But but the because the music serves another purpose other than being original, right? You know, like this, the idea of like the, the genius composer, or the you know, that like does these things. I mean, it's, I think it's flawed. I don't know. I wouldn't beat yourself up about not that, not that you're beating yourself up about it, but I'm not. But I would, <laughs> so, that was just a deep, dark secret that I had to share.
of the things that probably like you, I'm in contact with a lot of composers and I hear a lot, you know, I'm going to write smaller works because, you know, you're just not going to get orchestra pieces played. One of the things that you're continuously doing is writing these grand orchestral pieces. You have recently written a first sonata. I I was just kind of thumbing through the score, which like your symphony that we did and like your end of humanism and of course your isolation day, just fantastic music, beautiful music challenging music. It's it's not music that I think, I mean, I think you need a few rehearsals if you want to get a good recording out of it. Have you gotten these, any, this, this piece played or, I mean, what has been your uh, experiences recently with, with some orchestral works? So I'm going to say that I've never written an orchestra piece that I didn't think was going to get performed or that wasn't for performance. Like I didn't have a performance in mind. And in that I've been extraordinarily lucky, extraordinarily fortunate as a composer. And those opportunities came to me because I was a trombonist, right? Because I, and I think I was, I was all right. You know, like I, I was able to play in the orchestras that I was able to then write music for. Um, so that was like a real luxury, a real privilege. But, you know, it also kind of limits you a, l- a little bit as a composer, right? Like there's a lot of composers who don't write or- orchestra music because their personal voice or the, their approach to music making doesn't really fit well into like the orchestra model, right? You have to be a certain kind of, uh, or write, a, I think orchestra music has to be a certain kind of music. You can't do things that are too far outside the box in a certain sense. You can't do things that are too, like, that are going to take too much rehearsal time. You know, I mean, it's expensive, you know, you get everyone up there on the stage, especially with new music, you know, I mean, you don't have proofreaders all the time. You don't have people to go through this course. So there's certain risks that you can't take, right? So that kind of like automatically creates like a certain kind of, I guess, a certain kind of composer, a certain kind of music that get written for orchestra. But this piece that you mentioned, that first sonata, that is the first piece in my life that I wrote without thinking about a performance. I just actually just sat down and was like, you know what, I'm going to write an orchestra piece because I knew there wasn't a guaranteed performance. I, I knew from the beginning, this, I have to make a score that's just fucking flawless and perfect. And, and that was, that was, and I think that's what I did. <laughs> I don't know. It's funny you say that because of, as I was looking at this, it's like, it's like passion project, you know, 101. Like that's what I feel. You know, so that's that's really cool, and it's it's going to get performed. You already have a performance lined up. Yes, the great the orchestra of um, Porto Alegre, Brazil, the state orchestra. Nice. Yeah, I used to know the conductor there. No way. <laughs> okay, good. Who? Well, it would it would it would have been in the nineties. I mean, well, I didn't know him. I, I knew him later, but he would have been the conductor there in the nineties. So I don't know if you would know. I'll get there in a second. But anyway, the, the performance was scheduled for March. It was supposed to be in March, March 30th, but because of the pandemic and everything, now they've rescheduled it for August. But I have, I am assured that it's going to be, that they're going to do it. The thing is that the piece is actually, it's kind of a special situation because it's getting played at that orchestra, not because I sent it, you know, you know, like the, cause I'm a, a composer of note or anything. It's because the piece is actually, it's called First Sonata because it is the music of my first violin sonata. It's the same music, it's just orchestrated. And that violin sonata I wrote for uh, a good friend of mine. His name is Emmanuel Baldini, who I met here. He was directing the orchestra at the 
um, the chamber orchestra at the university where I work at, at another campus. But he's also, he plays, he's the principal violinist of the Sao Paulo Orchestra. And so he also conducts, right, aside from being an amazing violinist. And he liked my music. We got it, we, you know, we started talking. So I wrote him that first sonata. And, you know, he went and played it. And he really likes the piece. He's very enthusiastic about it, which is always, you know, I mean, you know, I mean, that's very rewarding, you know, for me. So anyway, he is constantly going and doing guest conducting engagements. So I knew if I send him to, you know, obviously he's going to want to do it. And, you know, so he programmed it. That's amazing. I was just looking at it and trying to figure out how can we do this at some point too. So. Well, thank you. I, I think you'll really like it if you do it. I do like it. It's wonderful. Yeah. Well, thanks. Is that the first time you've kind of adapted a larger scale orchestral work out of a smaller chamber work? No, I do it all the time. Sometimes piano pieces for band or organ works or things. Um, I'm not I'm not shy about um, reorchestrating music because I always think orchestrally. You know, I, I think in, in kind of like those kind of terms. But I will say that the transition, like some pieces, like like piano pieces that I've orchestrated, don't usually turn out very well. But a piece for violin and piano translates very well to orchestra because the problem is with writing for the piano, you don't get the, you miss the string sound. You miss the, the, the voice of the strings and the sustain. And because it's a violin sonata, right, you have that one principal line, you know, of the string. So you get the representation and the score very minimally. But the, a violin and a violin sonata can represent a string section, right? And so it, because the material of that sonata is kind of extroverted, it's, it's not like fast chamber music. It, it's big kind of music. It just laid very well into the orchestra once it started, you know, once it started orchestrating it. Because, yeah, I mean, so that, that dyad of the, the strings and, the, and the, the single string line in the piano translates very well to, to orchestra in this case. So I think probably the next time I write an orchestra piece, I'll start off doing it. I, like, I'm not going to do a, a single piano sketch like I've done before. I think the next time I do, I'll write something for it. Solo violin and piano and then orchestrate it. Yeah. And that's kind of a common compositional practice. Tchaikovsky, write for the piano, then orchestrate it out. Schumann, Sibelius was the same way. I mean, he was a violinist and he got rejected from the Vieta Philharmonic, lucky for us. So he devoted his life to composition but he supposedly hated the piano because it just didn't. And you hear that. I mean, Sibelius, there's the most beautiful, lush, tutti string episodes that one could ever imagine. Yeah. So I think that's necessary in some way to make that transitory. I mean, how many people open up a, a full manuscript and just start, you know, flute, oboe, you know, just start writing down exactly and have it that organized in their head? Well, it doesn't necessarily have to be organized. A lot of composers, like contemporary composers that I know who write for orchestra, actually do that. They just start with the full orchestra score and just jump right in. And, you know, you set one line down, you see how it works, and then you add other things to it. You know, um, I mean, there's as many ways to do it as there are people.
What is the difference for you between improvisation and composition? Now that is a sexy musicological question. That is, <laughs> ask a musicologist that question. We're looking for sex appeal. We're trying to put butts <laughs> in the seats here. <laughs> what is the difference between composition and improvisation? They're both a kind of singing. They're both a kind of um, inner voice. One has more detail than the other. Although you can improvise over the same structure many different times. I'd say my improvisations are definitely more wild than the written music. Because with the piano, especially, right? Like there's certain things that feel good to play, right? There's certain things that, you know, they, they feel great. You know, they just lay nice on the hands. You get wild sounds. But then you sit down and you actually like try to write them. And it's really hard. Like writing for the piano is like the no, like piano notation is a constant struggle, right? So no piano concerto from you anytime soon, probably. Well, if you want to fly me out to Colorado, maybe this is something that we could do. <laughs> you want to yeah. play it too? You was, that would be awesome. <laughs> then you don't have to write out the solo part. You can just try and remember it or make it up. Yeah, like Be Beethoven's fourth. Concerto, I think, right? Yeah, the, the page turner, right? Had uh, blank pages. Was was terrified because it was yeah. just blank pages. Yeah. <laughs> who needs who needs music? Contemporary piano concertos are interesting. <laughs> I think that's a hard nut to crack. What do you write? How do you write it? It's uh, and who do you get to play it? You just don't see that many new. I mean, violin concertos. I see more of those. But piano concertos, and I wonder why. I mean, a lot of composers, I would say specialist composers nowadays, I mean, there's a lot of composers who don't play the piano, right? And piano is one of those instruments that if you don't play it, it's really hard to make an effect, to write effectively for it, I think. Um, same thing like guitar, right? Accordion, another, like those instruments. If you, do, if you don't play them, I mean, there's a reason why like most guitar music is written by guitarists, most accordion music is written by accordionists, and most piano music is written by pianists. Harp, another one. Most harp music written by harpists. So especially if you're going to write a concerto, I mean, geez, it's tough. Especially because, you know, I mean, a composer, I mean, anytime you write a concerto, I mean, there's, or anything with orchestra, I mean, there's a huge amount of anxiety, I think, that is possible for a composer to feel. Not every composer has this anxiety, but... 
you know, you think about being compared to anything or like, what, how am I going to contribute? You know, those kind of things. If you're going to write a piano concerto, it's back to orchestral composers. It's a certain kind of music, right? Like there's a lot of music for piano and orchestra that could sound awesome, but it would be so experimental. It wouldn't be, you know, like maybe it wouldn't, like it probably would be tough to get it programmed. What are some of your favorite piano works other than yours, of course? No, my piano works are awful. I, I really struggle to write for the piano. I do. I do. No, no, no. I mean, no, I'm sorry. I write awesome piano music. We should do a piano concerto. <laughs> I'll edit part of that out. <laughs> I don't know what's that. I'm looking at my piano scores here. Um, I mean, I play Bach every day. I've gone through phases in my life where I do that, but I should do that every day as long as I'm living and breathing. What I was doing is the 24 Preludes and Fugues, so the, the Well-Tempered Clavier. Even number months, book two. Odd number months, book one. Every day, just sit down and, and play. I did that for a year. So you, and the thing is you can't, and they're hard. They're really hard. So you can't like actually sit down and play them. You know, some, most of them. No, no, no. When, when do you do the English or the French suites or the Goldberg variations? Do you incorporate those in at all? You know, I actually, I don't have the Goldberg variations and I don't have a lot of the variations. I have the French suites, the inventions, the partitas, and don't forget the chorales. The chorales are also really great. But, you know, Bach, that's like foundational. I mean, that's like ABCs, I think. And what's amazing is like, because it's so difficult to play Bach well on the piano, to do something that's musically convincing. There's so many problems with it. There's so many problems with playing Bach on the piano between the, the way that the piano sounds, the action of the piano, right, being heavy and uneven, right? You know, you play Bach on the, on the organ or the, the harpsichord, no note sticks out more than any other note. Right. Like it all just it just works. And the thing is, because Bach requires you, I mean, the way that you're the positions that you have to get your hands into, sometimes it's really hard to not have like one note just like jump out like a sore thumb. Right. But then that's the thing, you know, that's even if you want to play it like as it's written. But the thing is, the more I, I play Bach, I can play the same piece for years and years and years and keep getting deeper and deeper into it. Next month, I'm doing a recital and I'm playing the, the second partita. And I've started like really just like doing things that like, I don't, I don't know if they're right or not, you know, but I play some of them down an octave. I play the Quran down an octave. Some of them I play like the slow movements. I'll play like in double octaves with the hands. But anyway, I mean, so of course you, you know, start being a Bach, right? You can tell a guy walking down the street if they uh, play Bach every day or not. And you definitely have that look about you. <laughs> Crazed? <laughs> Centered. No, I don't know. Oh, Songs, Songs Without words. words. Yeah, that's a great one. Then the yeah. Oof. As pieces, like as music, they're a little sentimental. Sometimes they're a little... Yeah, no, they're, they're not masterpieces. But as far as piano writing goes, so rewarding. So good to play. Schumann's wonderful, too. Schumann, same thing. I mean, like, I, these are ones that I'll put out, up and, and read through them all the time. I mean, I've got, like, I've got all of them here. You know, I, I have contemporary music. I've got Stravinsky. I mean, I, I love to just, like, pick them out and, like, put them on and, and read through them. You have more piano scores than orchestral scores, I, I presume. Yes, because I'm in Chile. There's no orchestras here. <laughs> There's no orchestras in your school or town? Man, I took it for granted in the States how much of an infrastructure is needed for there to be an orchestra. Just the fact that an orchestra exists. I mean, it's like, you know, like an ecosystem, you know, in like, it has to have like so many different parts to have the apex predator, 
you know that kind of like it's like that beautiful jewel that sits on the top of a musical society What is your favorite piece of yours or has it yet to be composed or do you, do you not have it? Do you write? I mean, is it just what you do and you don't think of it that way? I say the trios, the flute, violin, cello trios. Those are pretty close to my heart. Those are beautiful. That's beautiful stuff. How, how did those come about? Can you talk about those? I wrote the first trio when I came back from Chile for the first time. And because while I was in Chile, I noticed that, folk music played a central role in the musical life and the musical environment. And when I got back to the States, I started thinking, well, what is my folk music? <laughs> What's your folk music, Devin? Hymns. <laughs> so that was the first trio was, you know, like, what is the music that comes naturally and easy to me? You know, like, what is the, what is what, you know, what is the music, a distillation of the, the songs that my mother would sing to me? And so that was the first one. But then the real surprise was that people liked it and started playing it because, you know, then it's like, oh, oh, well, maybe I like I did something that resonated with people. And then so then there was the idea that that got bounced around, like write a second one. Writing a second piece is always a challenge, right? When you it's one thing to write one string quartet or one piano sonata to write a second one is a, a challenge because the first one can just be tricks, right? You can just do things that come easily, that sound good. You can be like more spontaneous. But with the second one, it's like, okay, well now I've used all my tricks. So what am I gonna do? And it's like Hot Shots part duh. <laughs> the sequels are always oh, tough. They are, they are. And thank God, now I'm getting you know, a point that it's, now I'm starting to think about thirds of things. That's great. And then has the pandemic kind of necessitated more interest from these smaller works of yours? I'd say that there have been fewer performances overall, but other opportunities have come up. It's been very clear in the pandemic who the real champions are because the people who, who were doing a performance but really wanted to do it because they really liked the piece and went through with it anyway. You know, which, I mean, God, that means so much. That means so much to me. And I'm, I'm, so, I'm so thankful to have relationships with people like that. You know, the pandemic, what, you know, it's a mixed bag.
You know, sometimes a lot of the music from Bach, Baroque and stuff is, is not specified what instrument should play. How do you feel about people taking your music and say, hey, on this trio, I'd rather do it with a oboe instead of a flute, or hey, I'd rather add a couple of violins or a couple cellos to make it a section kind of thing. What are your thoughts on that? People do it all the time, and I'm always flattered by it. I'm just glad that people have interest. I thought you were going to say you're flattered by it, and then you deny their request. <laughs> no, no. On the contrary, in my mind, once I write the piece, it goes off on its own. You know, I mean, it's then it's done. It's no longer mine. You know, the, as soon as I put it up and put it out there, it goes off um, and does its own thing. And that's one of the most rewarding things about this, you know, is that this whole composition game is the longer you go with it, you see how each piece goes off and makes its own path in the world and creates its own relationships and how they evolve over time. And sometimes they come back, you know, and like there's people who play the trio and then there's the people who play, I don't know, like the, some of the orchestra pieces or, you know, other things. And they're not always the same people. And it's very cool. It's, it's, it's really cool being able to like sit back and just kind of watch that. I mean, that's the beauty of, of living outside of yourself when you write, right? You, know, you create art that's exterior, right? It's not temporal. It's, you know, it could be a book, a composition, a, a painting, whatever it is. It leaves you and then it's, it's gone. You know, then you're, you're just, a, you're just watching it, you know, like everyone else. And that's, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. That's cool. Well, thank you, uh, Edgar. It's been such a great time just reconnecting with you. And I'm glad we hit that record button. And uh, I look forward to uh, more of your music coming around the bend my way and hopefully putting some on and maybe doing some recordings. And when the coronavirus is mostly gone, it'll be nice to do some of your big, exciting, romantic orchestral works again. Yeah, man. Uh, I hope to hear from you again as well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, we're, we're talking, we're, we're talking now, we, you know, we, but I would like to hear from you more, you know, like send me a message, send me a, you know, stay in touch, man. I enjoy our relationship. Thank you for joining us on One Symphony and thanks to Edgar Gertain for sharing his music and insights. Thank you to all the incredible performers that made this episode possible. The music excerpted was from Edgar's Isolation Day 253, his trios, and Barbara Allen for voice and violin. You can check out Edgar's music online at edgargertainiv.com. You can always find more info at onesymphony.org, including a virtual tip jar if you'd like to support the show. Please feel free to rate, review, or share the show. Until next time, thank you for being a part of the music. Yeah.